Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In my view, the National Rifle Association is one of the most evil organizations in America. Through its financial influence, it's allowed the wholesale slaughter of 40,000 Americans a year so that its funders can keep making money. But things are not all rosy at the NRA, and I've asked Tim Mack, NPR's Washington investigative correspondent, an author of the new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA, to join us to discuss. The NRA, this uh, sort of legendarily powerful right-wing pro-gun advocacy group, um, if you have been following news about the NRA recently at all, you know that they are embroiled in all sorts of legal drama right now. I'm a representative of uh, Russian Federation here. Uh, and uh, I am a chairman of uh, the Right to Bear Arms. It's a Russian non-profit organization. The National Rifle Association has faced explosive criticism in recent years as the number of mass shootings in the United States has increased. A recent feature in the New York Times magazine describes how the organization's polarizing leader, Wayne LaPierre, is fighting a battle to retain control. At the National Rifle Association, there's a political fight at the very top. The first casualty, the group's president, retired Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Hi, I'm Tim Mack, and I'm passionate about holding powerful people and organizations accountable. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much, Tim, for being a part of the podcast. And I want to talk to you about your new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. But before we get there, I want to talk briefly about some of your other work. You've been NPR's Washington investigative correspondent during one of the most tumultuous times in our history. That seems like a really big job. Where do you even start? There are a couple ways to look at investigative reporting. There's like the data investigative reporter, and then there's the kind of source-based investigative reporter. And I kind of consider myself more of the the source-based investigative reporter. You know, it's going out talking to folks, trying to understand what's out there. In D.C., there's always kind of information fighting to be free. People have gossip. People understand, hey, I heard this thing that's not quite right that I don't like. You should take a look at this or you should spend a little time reporting this out. And that's kind of my method. Yeah, it's like Hollywood in that respect, except in Hollywood, we're more focused on breaking whatever deals are going on in Hollywood. You've done some reporting on the January 6th attacks and the arrest which followed. Can you just give our listeners just a a quick overview of that day from your perspective? What did you experience? What did you feel? 
What's interesting is that I spent a long time on Capitol Hill as a Capitol Hill reporter. So before I was an investigative reporter, I was the Capitol Hill beat for NPR and before that for the Daily Beast. So it was very personal to me in a way because you were watching your workplace get attacked. And so it was a very, it was, I think for almost everyone who worked on the Hill or spent time on the Hill, it was a very emotional day. It was a very personal day. And there was a lot of alarm because of how unprecedented that moment was. I'm sure it was, I'm sure there was plenty of alarm from people who hadn't had that same experience of working there. But I, I think it made it particularly acute for some of us who have spent days and nights and weekends working at that particular location. Yeah, it was so wild to me to watch, you know, because I've been going to D.C. since I was a, a teenager lobbying for different things that I believed in. And I always felt, to be honest, that it just seemed vulnerable. It didn't seem as secure of a place as it should be. And I wonder if before the insurrection, if you felt like, you know what, this space could go really wrong at some point. I think a lot of the big stories of the last five years, one of the reasons that they became scandals or problems or issues that we've had to deal with as a society have come from failure of imagination. Before 2015, 2016, could you have imagined, could the American government have imagined or most people have imagined the Russian government's role in spreading disinformation and trying to influence the American election, especially to the extent that it ultimately did? But isn't there someone's job to anticipate that stuff? Like, whose job is it to anticipate that stuff? I feel like there's got to be someone that's like, you know what? Here's what could go down. And let's make sure it doesn't go down. Yeah. With regards to January 6th in particular, there's a lot of heat coming down on folks in the U.S. Capitol Police, in the Department of Homeland Security, who either should have warned or didn't appropriately warn uh, the public about the, the risks of January 6th. This is the first time we hear from these top Capitol security officials who were at the helm the day of the insurrection. This is former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sun, ex-House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving, and former Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stanger. They all resigned their posts after the Capitol siege under pressure from congressional leaders. Sun, in particular, was emotional in his opening remarks. Let's take a listen. I want to again recognize the heroic efforts of the Capitol Police officers who on January 6th, outnumbered and against the odds, successfully carried out their mission to protect the members of Congress and the legislative process. But again, you have to wonder, to the extent that they might have warned the public, whether we could have imagined how serious and how devastating that day could have been. It's easy to look back in hindsight, much harder to, to say that we should have been, we should have anticipated it, we should have, I mean, this is obviously not to absolve the government for its, for its responsibility. But I think many of the issues from the pandemic to January 6th to the Russian government's influence campaigns have been issues of imagination. We didn't have the ability or, or the resources or the creativity to anticipate some of these huge problems that would be looming in our society. Some leaders in the GOP have issued threats to telecom companies about what they will do if those companies comply with subpoenas seeking records from certain Republicans in Congress about who they called during the attacks. What do you think that says about those leaders? So it's a very interesting time, right, for where the Republican Party is going to go in the future. And you've seen an evolution 
of how the mainstream GOP has viewed January 6th, from revulsion and condemnation by certainly quarters in the immediate aftermath, to a, a slow kind of shift towards it being less malign than they originally said it was. And obviously, you see some folks who in the Republican Party are positively supportive of some of the events that happened on January 6th. One of the big stories you broke was that of Maria Butina. So tell us who she was and what your reporting uncovered. So it, it's interesting because this, this is a good segue to the book, right? So a few years ago, back in 2016, 2017 timeframe, I sat down for breakfast with a source of mine. And he was like, hey, there's this weird, there's this person, there's this student at American University in Washington, D.C. And she's going around and she's saying that she's connected with the Russian government and involved in the Trump campaign and deeply influential in Republican Party circles and a big NRA booster. This is very strange. You'll remember in 2016, 2017, there was all this new reporting on the Russian government's influence campaigns and its efforts to influence the 2016 election. So I looked into it and I started reporting it out and I found out that there was this person, Maria Butina, who had claimed to infiltrate the NRA and had brought a delegation of NRA officials to Moscow. What does foreign asset mean in this context? What did the NRA do according to this report? Well, according to this report, they facilitated access for two Russian nationals named Maria Butina and Alexander Torshin. They've been in the news a lot. Maria Butina is currently in prison. Alexander Torshin was her boss. What did the NRA do? What we're talking about here is taking a look at the mission of Maria Butina and Alexander Torshin. What were they trying to do in the United States? And they were trying to expand their influence at the behest of the Russian government. And I reported out what exactly is happening. And ultimately, Ray Butina was charged with being a unregistered Russian agent. Uh, she ultimately spent some time in jail and was deported. It's so wild. I mean, talk about a, a Hollywood sort of plot. I'm wondering what information was she able to provide Russia that could have been damaging to our political process? I kind of went into the reporting process thinking was being used in some way by the National Rifle Association. But it turns out she was using the National Rifle Association and the National Rifle Association was being super malleable to her needs. And this is, this is something I get into quite a bit in this fire, that she spent a lot of time convincing NRA officials that it would be in the NRA's interest to support her. And so they did with money, with connections, networking. They gave her access to various politicians in, in a way that is truly stunning. I'm wondering if anyone's going to make that movie. Well, I think, that, I think the book is pretty cinematic. Her boyfriend now was convicted of federal financial crimes, but later pardoned ugh, by President Trump. Do you think that the NRA's influence might have had anything to do with that? I don't have any evidence the NRA was particularly involved in that. Paul Erickson, who was Marie Butina's boyfriend, or then boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, was pardoned as part of a number of pardons in the late Trump administration. And I think that all of those pardons related to Russia related. You know, the Trump administration has always said it's always condemned the quote unquote Russia hoax, right? And Paul Erickson's name being mentioned repeatedly in relation to Russia 
may have garnered him inclusion in that group. Jim, tell everybody about the first chapter of the book. The first chapter of the book opens up with Wayne LaPierre's wedding and him not showing up. Like this, this book is really like emblematic about Wayne LaPierre. He's the CEO of the NRA. His anxieties and his mismanagement and his corruption. The, the, he as an individual did not want to get married when he ultimately did get married in the late 90s because he was badgered into it. In a lot of ways, he's badgered into a lot of things as the, as the CEO of the NRA. And the book kind of explores so much of that. Him as a person and the NRA as an institution. It's interesting because these people, you know, from what we see on the news or, or read about, especially after mass shootings. As usual, the opportunist wasted not one second to exploit tragedy for political gain. Saul Linsky would have been proud. The breakback speed of calls for more gun control laws and the breathless national media eager to smear the NRA. We really wind up villainizing these people where they are the villain of the movie, basically, where there is this disconnect between who they are and their humanity versus the public persona and how that feeds into culturally how we want it to sound or who we want him to be. Did you have any empathy or compassion for him through this process of writing this book? I think what is interesting is that before I wrote the book, and the NRA has for many years been a black box. No one knew what the people were like, what they were saying internally, what's happening behind the scenes. And so it's easy to ascribe particular motivations to the organization or its senior leaders. And I went into this reporting process thinking of the NRA as a deeply efficient and competent and managed organization. And I come out of it understanding how Wayne LaPierre and the NRA are bumbling and incompetent and poorly managed and very chaotic throughout the last decade. And somehow they still managed to come out on top. Wayne LaPierre is still the CEO of the National Rifle Association, despite all of his flaws and all of his shortcomings. I'm wondering, like, the elected officials that seem to bow down to the NRA, and I'm wondering if what they're really bowing down to is not so much the NRA as it is its membership. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Right now, we have a Democratic White House, Democratic House of Representatives, and a Democratic Senate. And the NRA is at its weakest point that it's arguably been in decades. And there still isn't a lot of serious effort or serious contention for gun control legislation. And the reason is that even without the NRA as a lobbying force, and it's not gone, of course, there are still millions of members that would be very upset if lawmakers pass gun control legislation. I mean, how much foreign money do you think that the NRA took? It's not, I don't think that they took a lot of 
a substantial amount of foreign money. They have been investigated by numerous congressional committees, and there's just been no evidence of greater than in the low thousands. They may have members outside of the country that pay dues, but in terms of substantial amount of money, game-changing amounts of money, there's just been no evidence after numerous investigations by Congress, by the New York Attorney General, and by others who are interested in this topic. I want to start diving into your book, and I want to talk about the NRA. And I don't know, it hasn't always been this nefarious, right? The NRA. As an organization, this is like a major theme in the book. As an organization, the NRA really made a decision after Sandy Hook. They had been, prior to Sandy Hook, really interested in bipartisanship, really interested in reaching out to Democrats. But after Sandy Hook, they decided to double down on just Republicans and conservatives and get into the culture war as a means to bolster its influence. The NRA has blood on its hands. Shame on the NRA. The NRA leader had barely begun when protesters blamed the powerful lobby for the nation's epidemic of gun violence. NRA, stop killing our children. But the NRA was defiant. After remaining silent in the wake of the worst elementary school shooting in the nation's history, Wayne LaPierre was on the attack, blaming others for the recent carnage. It decided essentially just to be a kind of one-party organization. And once it did that, it, it lost a substantial portion of voters and, and Americans who they might have otherwise been able to convince to their side of the, the story. It had a long history of hunting advocacy. And I'm just wondering how it went from that to one of the most, I don't know, divisive right-wing organizations in the entire country, maybe even in the history of the country. It's certainly a really controversial organization. What the book does is it really puts you behind the scenes, right? It gets you inside the boardrooms, inside the meeting rooms, and into the power struggles and the dynamics of the organization over the last decade. We see Sandy Hook happen, and it decides, the NRA decides, to become a really Republican, strongly Republican organization. We look behind the scenes of what happened during Mansion Toomey, which is the last real go-round of serious gun control legislation that went before Congress. The NRA kind of played footsie with the idea, negotiated during that legislative process, and then pulled out at the last second without much explanation. And that was the last time it really negotiated on that sort of legislation at that sort of level. And since then, it's been a very pro-Trump, pro-Republican organization. Yeah, it's just the evolution and the trajectory of how the party got there and how the NRA and certain other groups like the Federalist Society also got to that place. But of course, this is an issue that touches so many people. There are so many people who are victims of gun violence. I've had some of my greatest activist friends or people who have lost people in these horrible mass shootings from Columbine to Sandy Hook to Pulse to Las Vegas to Parkland. And, you know, it's so many more on and on and on. And yet Congress has done nothing at all in response, which is so wild to me. How much influence did the NRA have on that inaction? Well, the NRA, a lot of people think the NRA is powerful because 
It has a lot of money and it does have a lot of money. But what, what's true is they have a really active, mobilized membership. Millions and millions of people who won't hesitate when the legislative issues are up for debate to just call and call and call their legislators. And legislators have been very reluctant to act because they have so many constituents that are calling them mobilized by the NRA to oppose gun control legislation. And, you know, it, looking at the current political environment, you have a Democratic White House, Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and there aren't really strong prospects for big game-changing gun control legislation. So much of what Biden ran on is not being taken seriously. And it's incredibly frustrating for those of us that work so hard to get him in office and to get Trump out of office. But I think the country, just like there's that meme that goes around every year during the Sandy Hook anniversary that the country made a real decision when they decided not to change things after the murdering of children. And we just see it mass shooting after mass shooting, how just nothing's being, nothing is being done. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what happened in 2019 and the end of the Oliver North presidency of the NRA. It's one of the kind of climactic points of misfire. One thing that we were able to do is obtain thousands of pages of secret documents that laid out what happened behind the scenes in the NRA as it was all collapsing. How did you get these documents? So it was really interesting because this book was reported out during the pandemic, obviously. And during the kind of worst day, early days in March and April of 2020, a source of mine indicated that there were these documents that the source would be willing to show me. And they were thousands of pages of sworn depositions in which senior NRA leaders talk about how the organization fell apart. And so there were no Ubers. It was hard to find public transport. So I ended up renting a moped in Washington, D.C. and driving for what seemed like hours and hours and met a source in a parking lot. And the source says, I've rolled down the passenger seat window. The documents are on the passenger seat. So I reach in, I grab the documents, put it in my backpack, and I moped my way out. (laughs) And these these sworn depositions are like the gold standard of evidence for reporters, you know, I mean, they're under oath. So you get all this information and it let me paint this very vivid picture of what happened behind the scene. You complement that with the over 120 interviews I did with folks relating to the organization and you get this very colorful picture of what happened behind the scenes in the NRA over the last decade. And just, you know, for your listeners, Oliver North famous for the Iran-Contra scandal, returns to prominence as the president of the NRA. And he really butted heads with the CEO of the NRA. And they had a big kind of clash. Uh, There's all this kind of, in 2019, there's all this corruption in the NRA starting to come out. All these reports of six figures for suits for Wayne LaPierre, private jets, travel to Europe. This is all coming out. And Oliver North is trying to challenge Wayne LaPierre. Trying to, trying to actually hold him accountable and gets essentially tossed out of the organization. And there's this chapter in Misfire about how they finally came to a head, the two of them, in a hotel room in Indianapolis. That was during the 2019 NRA convention, right? That's right. Yes. And so can you just walk us through what happened as far as you know? So Wayne LaPierre had brought on Oliver North to be a figurehead as president. Presidents of the NRA typically 
fundraise and they don't get involved in like day-to-day issues. And Wayne LaPierre had hoped that Oliver North would just go fundraise, bail him out of this financial problem and just keep it to himself. But Oliver North was deeply interested in finding out where's all this money that I'm fundraising? Where's that money going to? And he repeatedly demanded financial documents, an outside independent financial review of the NRA's status. Breaking news right here and right now involving one of the country's oldest and most powerful organizations, the National Rifle Association. A civil war of sorts erupting within the top ranks. The NRA president, you see him there, retired Marine Colonel Oliver North is out. The timing is striking with this one. The organization is holding its big annual meeting in Indianapolis right now. NBC's Hans Nichols is at the White House. And Hans, I should note that you were there in yeah. Indianapolis as the president's address the NRA just yesterday. Uh, What's behind this surprise announcement? Well, the difference is over spending priorities and budgetary shortfalls. Wayne didn't want to see that happen and and essentially got him tossed from the NRA all over this very controversial weekend in 2019, which is where a lot of this reporting of the problems inside the NRA started bubbling up. Recently, the NRA fled New York after Letitia James, New York's attorney general, started aggressively pursuing the organization. It also filed bankruptcy. How imperiled is the organization, really? The NRA has faced a number of problems over its existence, but they've never faced so many problems at once. They've got a revolt from some of its own members who are eager to get Wayne LaPierre out. They've got a revolt from his own board of directors. They've got multiple investigations into what's happening there. They've got an effort by the New York Attorney General to actually shut them down. And they've got serious financial problems that they need to resolve. All of those come together to create the most challenging period for the NRA to its very existence that we've ever seen before. So the organization fled New York. And where did it end up? Well, the NRA tried to leave New York. Part of the reason that they filed bankruptcy was so that they could try to move the organization under various bankruptcy rules. A judge said, hey, you can't do that. And so now they still remain under quite a lot of peril from the New York Attorney General's efforts to shut them down. You know, you mentioned the judges. Do you think they were going to go to Texas to because they were judge shopping? Yeah, one of the one of the reasons why the NRA may have tried to go to Texas and filed its case in Texas may have been because they thought they could get a better shot at a judge that would be sympathetic to them. Ultimately, they didn't get a judge that was sympathetic to their argument, and their effort to move out of New York was ultimately shut down. And. I mean, how about you during this time that you are reporting all of this? I mean, did you have any resistance? I would imagine you did from the NRA when you were reporting on this book. It's interesting. I I got a lot of access for this book 
I did over 120 interviews and really got deep inside the NRA. The NRA over the last couple of years we've been talking about has been crumbling. It's been on the decline. It's really struggling. The NRA, known as a defender for gun rights and a leader in firearm education, is mired in controversy. Never in the history of the NRA have so many powerful forces attacked us on so many different fronts. Claims of financial wrongdoing, which the NRA has denied, have led to multiple investigations in Congress and in New York State that are threatening the group's survival. I think the NRA really is in existential danger right now because of the many forces that have converged to bring it down. I think there are a lot of folks who want to make their viewpoint known. Hey, I'm not responsible for this part of this. Or they have scores to settle or they feel betrayed. And in, in a lot of ways, a lot of folks with stories to tell about the inner workings of the NRA came to me or were willing to talk to me for this book because of all those motivations. And I also got thousands of pages of internal documents sworn depositions that were filed under seal of senior leaders in the NRA kind of explaining who was in the room, what they said, where they were, and how this whole collapse of the organization happened over the last few years. So with all of that that you accumulated, that you found out, that you were able to scoop all of your reporting, what do you think the most important thing your reporting revealed about the organization? I think Misfire is a really human story. I went into this process thinking the NRA was very competent, very powerful, possibly even menacing, at least in terms of its relation to what a reporter would want to find out. And what I found was that Wayne LaPierre and the leadership of the NRA kind of laid out a lot of what they did in terms of misconduct and wrongdoing. Ultimately, I found the organization to be disorganized, incompetent, really poorly managed, poorly run, chaotic. The organization itself, if you look behind the curtain, while it has a lot of money, is run very poorly. Wayne LaPierre as a leader is someone who's highly anxious, indecisive, and not particularly a good manager. Before this book, there wasn't a lot of understanding of who Wayne LaPierre was as a human being. But I spoke to a lot of people who knew Wayne LaPierre personally was able to paint this portrait of man and the human side of the NRA. Do you think that if leadership changes and Wayne LaPierre leaves, that there is the potential that it will go back to what it was? Or do you think that the members that are there now will insist the NRA stay a far-right organization? I think that Wayne LaPierre, Wayne LaPierre has had incredible staying power. Over the last couple of years, we've seen story after story that has shown how he's mismanaged the organization, how he's allegedly spent thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on inappropriate expenses. And yet he remains all the same. He's got a lot of support inside the organization. You don't really see any way for the NRA to move forward without him. But the NRA like I was saying earlier, the NRA really derives its power from its membership, that if Wayne LaPierre were to disappear overnight for whatever reason, it would still remain a very powerful organization with a lot of assets and a lot of organizational capacity and a lot of influence in American politics. Do you think that the NRA has a responsibility for the gun violence epidemic in America? I think what it is, what the book is about is about the NRA's corruption and how it's 
betrayed its membership and the public more broadly with millions of dollars of inappropriate spending and misconduct. Yeah. And also its influence over elections. And that's the thing that is most concerning to me. What's been interesting is that as this corruption has developed and as the NRA has been less and less able to spend money, here's an interesting fact. In 2016, they spent more money promoting Donald Trump's campaign than Trump's own super PAC. But in 2020, as it struggled with its finances, it was unable to spend nearly as much. The eight-year assault on your Second Amendment freedoms has come to a crashing end. President Trump today assured members of the National Rifle Association that the $30 million the gun lobby spent in support of his election campaign was worth it. As your president, I will never, ever infringe on the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Never, ever. The NRA was an early backer of candidate Trump and spent more money on his behalf than any other advocacy group. It was a shadow of its former self. So the NRA is really facing some serious troubles when it comes to its influence and its money. But we're at a strange inflection point because I do think that the organization is pretty resilient and can bounce back from its current problems. Do you think they should be held accountable for any of this? They certainly should be held accountable for misconduct, right? So they're a nonprofit organization. They don't have to pay taxes on income. It's a huge, it's a huge benefit given to organizations that we consider to be acting in the public interest or to be helping the community in some way. That's, that's what nonprofit status is about, education or helping organize the community in various ways. And there's a lot, there are a lot of folks, or rather there's a lot of evidence They've been spending that money and taking that public trust and not been accountable or responsible. My last question is a question I ask all of my guests because I like to leave my listeners with a little bit of hope. So what gives you hope? Generally speaking, when when misconduct happens, eventually it finds a way to fight itself out and, and be revealed. The fact that we know all of these things mean that there are people who are appalled about the misconduct inside the other. And we're willing to talk about it and share that information, whether to the New York Attorney General or congressional investigators, or to me as a reporter writing this book about the inner workings of, uh, of the NRA. I, I do have hope that people ultimately do decide to come public with serious wrongdoing. Well, Tim Mack, you give me hope. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the podcast and all you do. Thank you so much. The messaging from the NRA has been that uh, we all want to take away their guns and we don't believe in the Second Amendment. And um, I'm going to tell every member of the NRA that I don't want to take away your guns. I have no desire to take away your guns. But I do believe that we should be able to live in a country um, where we feel safe. And uh, that our gun lobby doesn't control policy. I said it at the top of the show, and I will say it again. The NRA is evil. Now, I'm not talking about its members. I'm talking about the organization. It lies. It suppresses speech. Its influence stretches far beyond guns and has hurt Americans of every stripe in every state. It has corrupted state and federal legislatures, 
and is internally corrupt. The NRA is exactly why we need to end dark money in our political system. Citizens United made it impossible to know where the NRA's funding comes from. It's not its members, in any real sense. So who's paying to make sure Congress does nothing after the next school shooting? Well, it's not just the NRA. The Federalist Society, the National Sports Shooting Foundation, any number of super PACs, the Trump Organization, left or right, we deserve to know whose money buys them a vote in Congress. We can't shine a light on corruption if we're not allowed to buy flashlights. And yeah, fuck the NRA. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.